Welcome to Community Hope Podcast. We pray that the Word of Christ would dwell in you richly as you listen and that you would be encouraged in Christ. And I get the opportunity, I get the privilege of sharing with you the last in the series on the book of James. This will be uh, James chapter 5. Um, I don't know about you, but when I think about the internet, and if you were to ask me, like, friend or foe, um, I think on balance I'd say foe. And, but however, there, are, there is something about the internet that I really, really like, and um, that is all these little how-to videos about you know, how to repair stuff, how to get stuff going. I mean, just in the last month, I've, uh, you know, tried to, I've found out exactly where to put the washer when you're replacing the aerator on your kitchen faucet, how to fix the lack of orientation, I mean, the inability to reorient with an iPhone, how to change the uh, dashboards, dashboard settings on a Camry, and then also how to buy a, a cheap can of pork and beans and add stuff to it to make it seem like it's not so cheap. And so, I mean, all that stuff's there, man. It's, this is really great. You know, but if you want life lessons, if you want to know the really important things in life, um, you can't find it on the internet, you know? And I think James 5 is a great place to, to learn life skills that are not taught in school, not taught on the internet, that are not taught by humans, but really come right from the heart of God. And so we're going to be looking at some real practical stuff this morning as, as we go through this last chapter of James. And the first thing uh, that James talks about is how to survive the coming financial uh, crash. You're going, wow, this is a book written like 2,000 years ago, and they're talking about the coming financial crash? Yeah, well, let me put it, let me put it this way. Let's take a look at uh, James chapter 5, verse 1. He says, look here, you, <clears throat> you rich people. And whenever I see the word rich in the Bible, I mean, I know enough history to know we're rich, right? Uh, my definition of rich is you got more than what you need. And I consider myself a rich person. And if I look at, like, the standards of living of people throughout history, we're rich. You know, we, we, got, it, we got it good. And he goes, look here, you rich people. Weep and groan with anguish because of all the terrible troubles ahead of you. Your wealth is rotting away and your fine clothes are moth-eaten rags. Your gold and silver are corroded. The very wealth you are counting on will eat away your flesh like fire. He's talking to people who aren't just rich, but they're people who are depending on their wealth. People are going like, you know what, I, this, is, this is where I gotta, I'm banking my future. My financial security is, is here. And if you're a person that's depending on wealth, there's going to be a crash because wealth is a double-crosser. It's something that betrays us every time. You know, it just doesn't deliver what it promises. Jesus refers to money as a God. He says it's, it's either got to be God or it's got to be money, and you got to choose, you know, one or the other. Who are you going to count on? Who are you going to rely upon? Um, you know, if you look back at 2009 with that financial crisis, you know, in, in America all over the world, really, 5,000 suicides, you could just pin down just to that particular thing. People are going like, whoa, my, my foundation is like crumbled. My, my world is, is gone right here. I'm, I, I, I can't live. I can't make it anymore. And think about this. You know, they've, studies have shown the number one area of contention between married couples is money. What's the biggest cause maybe of anxiety and worry in our lives? Many times 
It's about money. And how many times haven't we just been let down? We're going like, I think I got it together here. And then all of a sudden, the bottom falls out. You know, James is on to something here. And he says, look, you know, knowing this, don't exacerbate your situation. He says, this corroded treasure you have hoarded will testify against you on the day of judgment. For listen, hear the cries of the field workers whom you have cheated out of their pay. The cries of those who harvest your fields have reached the ears of the Lord of heaven's armies. He's going, you can't be a person who is like hoarding it for yourself and saving it when there are people around you who are in need. You can't be somebody who exploits other people, takes advantage of them to increase your stash. Don't exacerbate your situation. He says, you've spent your years on earth in luxury, satisfying your every desire. You fatten yourselves for the day of slaughter. You have condemned and killed innocent people who do not resist you. And he talks here about self-indulgence. I mean, that's us in America, isn't it? It's like, we go like, it's my money, and so I'm going to spend it, and this is what I want for me, and I'm, I don't care where, you know, what it is, I've got to have that kind of thing. Now, nowhere in this whole section here, the six verses where he talks about this, does he mention the idea of being generous. But, I mean, if you're reading between the lines here, he's going, look, these kind of self-indulgent and exploitative and hoarding ways aren't going to get you anywhere. And the implication is, look, you need to give it away. Where there are needs, where the kingdom needs to be advanced, you need to give it away. And the Bible's full of this, where it talks about how generosity is really where the heart of God is and how it has such benefits. Like it just, it releases that hold that that money has on us that causes us so much worry and angst. As we give it away, we, we, are, we find ourselves freed up. And we find out that, you know, like Jesus says, when you give it away, you're actually storing it up in heaven where it's going to have a reward that's never going to wear out. It's the smartest thing you can ever do. And God blesses that. You know, it, 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 you know Jesus says, give, and it will be given to you. The measure you use for others is the measure that God is going to use for you. And the Lord is calling us to generosity. I'll give you a, an analogy here from a different area. You know, we've, we've read in, uh, you know, in the news about uh, uh, the terrible accident that Tiger Woods had that has like, uh, really threatened the rest of his golfing career. And it brought back to people's minds the, uh, uh, Ben Hogan, who was actually the Tiger Woods of his day back in the 40s and 50s, greatest golfer in the world. Um, he set all kinds of records. And the terrible car crash that he had, he and his wife were driving back from the Phoenix Open that he had just won. This is 1949. And they were on a narrow uh, two-lane highway in Texas um, that had concrete abutments along either side. This is before the days of seatbelts. It was a foggy uh, day as they were driving, so he was going 25 miles per hour. And all of a sudden, a Greyhound bus pulls out from behind a truck that's coming in the other direction. And it, this Greyhound bus is going 50 miles per hour and heading straight at them. And Hogan's wife goes, he's going to hit us head on. And so what Ben Hogan did was he threw himself in front of his wife to save her life. You know, the ultimate act of generosity, he, he threw himself in front of her. And they, they were hit head on. Um, his wife's life was saved. He was horribly hurt. It looked like he would never, ever walk again. It was an amazing thing that he, that he was able to walk, 
finally, with so much work, and finally get back to his golf career. But what happened when that bus hit that car, it drove the engine into the steering wheel and rammed the steering wheel all the way through the seat that he had just been sitting against. If he had not saved his wife's life, he would have lost his own. And that's a picture, I think, for us, is when we give of ourselves, we receive. It's like the Lord blesses that. He goes, oh, that's great. That's great. I can invest in you because you know what you're doing here. You're putting that money where I want it to go. And so I think James is saying through all these warnings, he's saying, be a generous people and, and set yourself free from that dependence on that wealth that is, is really actually blighting your life. I, I read the, an article in the Washington Examiner last week, and the guy was talking about Ash Wednesday and all the uh, uh, elaborate things that people were doing in churches to avoid touching people, like when they were putting on ashes and stuff. And the last line of the guy's article, he said, for Lent, I'm going to give up fear and go back to church. I thought, good for you, buddy. You know, that's the way. And you know, when we kind of get out of the introversion that the, this year of the pandemic has caused, and we get back into like getting involved in people's lives and and getting busy with doing things for, for others. Um, that's just a, that's a great thing, right? But what that brings with it is frustration. It brings frustration. Because whenever we're trying to do our, our work as well as we possibly can, it gets frustrating, doesn't it? When we're trying to do the right thing, it, it's just so easy to get burned out. We're trying to do the best thing for our kids and our family. We're trying to help a friend um, we're, we're trying to teach our lessons. We're trying to do our best work uh, at the office and with the people that we're with. And it's just like we just kind of feel sometimes like I just want to give up. And so James is going to talk now about how to handle the, frustra the frustration that comes from your good intentions. And uh, he says something interesting here. He says, Dear brothers and sisters, be patient as you wait for the Lord's return. Consider the farmers who patiently wait for the rains in the fall and in the spring. They eagerly look for the valuable harvest to ripen. I think of my brother-in-law here, you know, who's a farmer in Indiana, and his, uh, his son, they farm 2,000 acres together. And this is uh, what it looks like when they plant. Uh, they use this, uh, the seed drill. You know, they don't plow fields, the farmers who really know what they're doing anymore. They use no-till. They just let the, the old crops just kind of uh, decompose and fertilize the soil, and they drill the seed through it using actually satellite technology. These guys are big time, right? But when that farmer plants his field, he, um, he doesn't go like, whoa, go out there the next day and go, what's happening here? You know, he's, he's patient. He's waiting. You know, he realizes it's going to take a while for that seed to germinate. It's going to take a while for that seed to look up. And then he's waiting for stuff that's way beyond his control with the rains. And he's looking at the prices of commodities. And he's, he's being patient. And James is saying we've got to look long term. We've got to look long term when we're trying to do our work in the Lord's service, when we're trying to deal with the things in our lives and the things that God has, has told us to do. But... He's not talking exactly about the farmer thing. You know how with the farmer we go like, okay, so I'm going to try to look long-term and I'm going to be patient till the end of the year or something like that. Like I as a teacher, 
when I go before my students every day and, you know, I'm, I'm preaching the Word of God to them and I'm looking at the results, I'm going, whoa, I'm not doing so well. You know, I'm going like, I don't know if most of them are even believing what I'm saying. And even if they're like half-heartedly believing, I'm wondering if they're even putting it into practice in their own lives. And sometimes they get a glimpse in their lives and I'm going, whoa, this isn't working at all. You know what I'm saying? And I would be discouraged if, if I was looking short-term, but I even would be discouraged, too, if I try to look down the road to a year or two years because I find my batting average is pretty low. And James is on to something that's a little different. He's saying, think super long-term, okay? Because he says, you too must be patient. Take courage, for the coming of the Lord is near. Now, what's he talking about here when he says, be patient and think about the coming of the Lord. Let me take you over to 2 Corinthians 5 where Paul says this, we must all stand before Christ to be judged. We will each receive whatever we deserve for the good or evil we have done in this earthly body. When Jesus returns, he says the first thing that's going to happen is he is going to judge the believers. If he's going to gather his people before him, we're his, we're his people. And he's going to go like, okay, this is, this is what you've done here, and here's the rewards for your service. And he's going to like dole that out. It's what we call, you know, you can see it in 1 Corinthians 3, the judgment of rewards. And so, the, so we've got to look long term. We're going okay, I'm serving the Lord here, not the people. It isn't about even the consequences that I'm seeing in the people's lives that I'm serving, but it's how am I serving Jesus. I don't know if, you know, like look at it this way from um, like this guy right here. This guy's name is John, and um, he's part of the 40 Days for Life campaign. So what he does, he's in Forest Hills, Georgia, and he's like the leader of the group that's there. And every day he goes down to the Planned Parenthood, and he uh, prays uh, to end abortion. And he spends hours there doing that, just quietly praying. You know, some of us here at church who go over to the Planned Parenthood at, in Bedford Heights, and we, you know, we, we stand in front of there with our sign that says, pray to end abortion. We just quietly pray. We pray the same things that was, was prayed this morning in the prayers that turn the hearts of parents to children. And and open the eyes of those who are working that they would see, hey, this isn't the right thing to do, you know, and just pray for the moms and stuff and families. And so one, this is like a couple weeks ago, this guy was there just doing his thing, praying there, he's an older fella, and a car goes by and lays on the horn and the guy gives him the finger. And about 50 yards afterward, after this, the guy's car goes, bam, and it just stops running. And so, so the guy gets out of the car, and there's nobody else on the street except for John uh, doing his, pray, just praying there. And the guy comes over to John, and he goes, uh, my car broke down, uh, can you help me? And John goes, didn't, didn't I just see you uh, lift the middle finger to me? And the guy goes, yeah. And John goes, okay, well, let's go fix your car. So John went over there, helped the guy fix his car, and the guy went on. See, John had the long-term view, right? The super long-term view. Because John could sit there, and I've, you know, going over to Planned Parenthood, I have the same thoughts. I'm going, what good is this doing? 
I mean, these guys get $600 million a year in tax money from various sources. They're making all this money. Why should they quit? It's like it's hopeless. This thing is too big. I'm too little. What can I do? But he's going like, no, this isn't it. And in Hebrews 6, verse 10, it says this, For God is not unjust. He will not forget how hard you've worked for him and how you've shown your love to him by caring for other believers as you still do. See, what God pays off on is what? The fact that we're faithfully working hard for him and that we're caring for others. You know, those kind of things, he goes, that's precious in my sight. Yeah, you know, you didn't see any results and maybe you worked as hard as you could for your family or you prayed for that person for 20 years and you never saw anything happen. But I'm not going to forget the fact that you patiently plugged away and you honored me by working hard for me and you honored me by caring for others and caring for other believers. And God loves that. And that's where the reward really comes in. Um, the woman on the left there is uh, my daughter-in-law, Catherine, in Las Vegas. There's my son, Adam. You can see that uh, massive body build that he inherited from me. And uh, she, she's out there in Vegas, and they're going like, we don't have anybody to do our 40 days for a life here. And she's going, well, you know, I don't have any uh, experience, but okay, I'll, I'll do that. And she's told me, she said, it, it's frustrating because when you're working with people, and, and every one of you knows this, as you work with people, like Betty says, people are so peopley, you know, they're just frustrating. They just go like, well, I'm kind of busy, you know, I don't want to do anything. And then there are the people who do work, sometimes they don't get along because one's in one denomination, one's in another, and you can't get, people say they're going to show and they don't, you know, and it's just so frustrating. And it's like James is going like, and I think Catherine's good at this, by the way, he says, you've got to resist the temptation to point fingers at others. You know what I mean? You get so frustrated, don't you, with your coworkers sometimes or the people in your family? And here you're trying to do your best, and they're just, they're just getting in the way, you know? They're just like, ah, you know? And he says, don't grumble about each other, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. For look, the judge is standing at the door. And the Lord is going, look, a part of plugging away and serving me is just loving those people who just aren't helping you out. He's going like, be patient in that way as well. He says, for examples of patience and suffering, dear brothers and sisters, look at the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. We give great honor to those who endure under suffering. For instance, you know about Job, a man of great endurance. You can see how the Lord was kind to him at the end, for the Lord is full of tenderness and mercy. We give great honor to those who endure under suffering. You know, when we think about the presidents who've been president of the United States, I think just about everybody agrees, and I do too, that Abraham Lincoln was the best, right? And I'm going like, why was he so great? And why do, do others not measure up to him? And you know what I think the secret of Lincoln's greatness was? I think it's because he suffered. It's just like he says in James, that suffering brings about some greatness in people. It helps us in so many ways. And if you look at Lincoln's life, it's like at age seven he had to quit school because his family was like in such financial trouble. He had to work at, at the age of seven. His mother died when he was nine years old. 
And uh, he never was able to go to law school, which was his dream because he just didn't have the education, you know, the educational credits. Um, at age 22, he lost the job that he had. And then he got involved with another guy in a little business venture. And that guy ended up dying with a lot of debts. And Lincoln had to spend years just paying off those debts. And when he was 28 years old, he proposed to a woman that he had been in love with for four years. And they'd been kind of, you know, together. And she turned him down. Uh, you know, years before, there was somebody else that he loved, but she had died. Um, at age, you know, 37... He was running for Congress, and he lost. And then he ran again, and he lost. And then he ran a third time, and finally he won. But then when he ran for re-election, he lost again. Uh, he had a nervous breakdown when he was 39. Uh, he got married, but his wife uh, developed mental illness and was just a major problem for him his whole life. At the age of four years old, his son died, um, and he had to mourn that. He ran for the Senate when he was 45. He lost. He ran for vice president when he was 47. He lost. He ran for the Senate again when he was 49. He lost. You know, all this kind of stuff. And then when he became president, he was just like ridiculed and lampooned. And, and it was just like nobody, you know, it was like he, he lacked the respect from other people, even though he was doing the best possible job. And, but he was the greatest president of all. Why? All this suffering was like that crucible that just refined his character. And uh, James says, man, he says, be patient, be patient, because the Lord is developing you into even a more useful person than you were before. He also says, don't jump into rash actions, you know. Above all, he says, never take an oath by heaven or earth or anything else. Just say a simple yes or no so you won't, be, you won't sin and be condemned. Then he goes on, he talks about what to do when you're in trouble. And he says simply this, are any of you suffering hardships? You should pray. You should pray. But I think that's the idea of, hey, pray first. I don't know about you, but when I like, get into trouble and hardships, the first thing I do is complain. And the second thing I do is worry. Then I go back to complaining, and then I worry some more, and then I start trying to think of like genius schemes to get me out of trouble. And then eventually I go like, you know what, I ought to pray. Oh, who would have thought of that, you know? But then when I pray, then finally things start to happen. And I think we've got to cultivate this like, uh, idea, this, this discipline, is when things start getting, going off the track, to pray first, to pray first. You know, it's like I think many times we don't realize the cost of not praying. Uh, when Doug went through James 4 last week, he ran... Uh, uh, through verse 2. And it, remember, it said, you want what you don't have, so you scheme and kill to get it. You're jealous of what others have, but you can't get it, so you fight and wage war to take it away from them. Yet you, do, you don't have what you want because you don't ask God for it. I'm convinced that every one of us in this room, there are some things that God wants for us, but he's waiting for us to ask for them before he gives it to them. You know, I remember when my son Mark was uh, about seven years old, okay, he's a, he a little kid, and uh, we were eating um, Sunday dinner, we're all sitting around the table, and uh, about 10 minutes into the meal, Mark says, hey, I didn't get any meat, and I was looking right at him, and I go like, oh, that's too bad, and I just kept eating, and uh, he just sat there, you know, like, what? and then about five minutes later, he goes, 
can you pass the meat, please? I go, sure. You know, I was just, I'm going like, just, you know, I don't pay off on whining. You know, I pay off on asking me, you know, communicate. I think God's the same way. That's why our Heavenly Father is. He goes, I want to hear from you. I want to hear from you. If you're just going to whine about it, you know, talk to me. And I can't tell you how many times in my life it's taken until I finally humble myself and go like, help, I need your help here. Then when things finally start to get done. Then he goes, uh, what to do when things go well? And he says, are any of you happy? You should sing praises. And I'd say what he's saying there is sing the Lord's praises. You know, we've been praying on Saturday night for our friend who comes every Saturday night, Jackie, right? She had cancer surgery, and, and it looks like she's cancer-free, and the surgery was very successful. And so we're grateful to the doctors, but we're praising God for that. You know, we've been praying for Camille with the knee surgery, and um, it's like, yeah, we're grateful for the good, works, the good work the doctors did, but we know that even the very best doctors, if the Lord's blessing isn't on what they're doing, it's just not going to happen. And so we come and we sing the Lord's praises. And then he's got a couple of interesting things to tell us about what to do when you're sick. Uh, and the first thing that he says here is this, have the church leaders pray for you. It's interesting. He says, are any of you sick? You should call for the elders of the church to come and pray over you, anointing you with oil in the name of the Lord. Such a prayer offered in faith will heal the sick, and the Lord will make you well. And if you've committed any sins, you'll be forgiven. Why would he say this? You know what I think it might be? I think it's like if you're like me, when you're sick, your faith starts to shrink and you start like going, oh, what could this be, right? I'm always a worst-case scenario guy. Every little thing could be like the tip, off, tip of the iceberg that something terrible is happening to me. And so I just like, when I pray, I'm going, hey, I'm sick, I don't know if I... But when you call in somebody else and you ask somebody else to pray for you, like he's talking about the leaders of the church, these should all be praying people, people who have experienced and do a lot of praying themselves. And they've seen the results of prayer in their lives and in other people's lives. And so they can pray in faith for you. And that could be a real, a real boost to have somebody else pray for you. And he adds this. He says, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so you may be healed. The earnest prayer of a righteous person has great power and produces wonderful results. So he's saying as part of praying to get well, we need to confess sin. Why would that be? You know, think about the fact that we're, we're spirit and we're soul and we're body and these things are so related. I think doctors will tell you, they'll say, you know what, your attitude that you have when you're convalescing, when you're sick, makes a big difference in how fast you're going to heal. I know I've read studies of... Um, like women, patients who've had like heart, uh, heart surgery, and they say that visits from other people in the hospital make a significant difference be, uh, from those who don't get visits. This is one of the terrible things about the pandemic was that it limited the fact that we could visit people who were sick, but that's so important to get that encouragement. Now think about somebody who's carrying around sin. I mean, you know from experience, I know from experience what a burden that is. 
and how it just kind of, that burden keeps us from just having the joy of the Lord and to confess sin, to get it off of our chest, to take it to the Lord can make such a difference. I'm reading this book right now called Tramp for the Lord by Corey Tenboom. I'm, I'm sure some of you have heard of her, but Corey was this person who was uh, hiding Jews in World War II from the Nazis. Eventually, she and her family were arrested. They were sent to death camps. Uh, most of her family died in the death camps. She was released uh, by a fluke. It was a miracle of God. She got out in 1944, and after she got out and the war ended, the Lord laid on her heart, you've got to go back to these countries that have suffered through war, and you've got to tell them your testimony and share the gospel with them. And so she obeyed that call of the Lord to do that. And now here she is, the one country she hasn't visited is Germany. She said, oh, that was, that's going to be so hard to go back there and, and preach the gospel to them, and, you know. But she knew that the Lord wanted her to do it. So she booked an airplane flight, and she was ready to go, even though she was very, like, pessimistic about the whole thing. And the night when her flight was supposed to take off, it was pouring rain. It was pouring so hard, all the flights were canceled. So she's going to a, a public phone booth to make a phone call uh, to get a ride home. She's living in, in Harlem at the time, Harlem in the, in, in, uh, the Netherlands. And uh, she slips and falls and seriously hurts her hip. It wasn't broken, but it was seriously hurt. And so she ends up in a hospital. And now she's like, man, I got to get out of here. I got to go to Germany. And she's not getting well. And finally, uh, she goes like, and she's really, by the way, being a real crab to her nurses and just a real pain. Is there not a Christian in all Harlem who can pray for me to be healed, I ask? This is I'm quoting from the book. My friend sent for a particular minister in the city who was known to have laid hands on the sick for healing. That afternoon, he came, uh, to, my, uh, he came to my room. Standing beside my bed, he said, is there any unconfessed sin in your life? He's following James 5, right? Corey was really offended. She's going, I just wanted the guy to pray, and now he's being nosy. Uh, what right does he have to ask this kind of stuff, you know? And then she thought about it for another few minutes, and she thought, you know, there is unconfessed sin in my life. I have been a beast to these people in the hospital. So she said, could you just send for my nurse? So they sent for the nurse. The nurse comes in, and Corey said, I have been terrible. I've been so wrong the way I have treated you, and I would just ask you to forgive me. And the nurse forgave her. Uh, she confessed the sin, and then she said the minister prayed for her. And she said she wasn't healed from the hip, but she said she just felt the presence of the Holy Spirit come upon her in such power that all of a sudden her whole attitude about going to Germany changed, and that just never let up, she said. She went there in the power of the Spirit. She said it was even better than being healed. Ten days later, she went out of that hospital and had a phenomenal ministry in Germany, even ministering to the very guards who had uh, been instrumental in the death of her beloved sister and had mistreated her and humiliated her. It was, it was amazing. You know, confessing means we're finally taking responsibility for our own actions. You know, we live in a culture where we just like to blame the stuff that we've done on everybody else or on societal conditions and stuff, and we need to take responsibility and just say, I was wrong. Confessing means agree. I'm agreeing with God and the others that it was a sin.
And the book closes with a couple of things. One is just a word of encouragement to us. And it talks about a guy who went through great discouragement. His name was Elijah. He got to the point where he, if you read his story, he goes like, just kill me, Lord. I'm not accomplishing anything here, even though I've done great things in your name. The earnest prayer of a righteous person has great power and produces wonderful results. Elijah was as human as we are, and yet when he prayed earnestly that no rain would fall, none fell for three and a half years. Then when he prayed again, the sky sent down rain and the earth began to yield its crops. Listen, when we're faithfully plugging away for the Lord in spite of not seeing the results, that kind of thing gives power to our prayers. It gives power to our prayers, just like Elijah's there. A man who was discouraged but still kept plugging away and God used him in mighty ways in spite of the fact that he couldn't even see it. And finally, there's something you and I need to hear in 2021. You know, we're living in a culture right here that is very unforgiving. And, uh, you know, just was reading in the news about uh, some books that I thought were really great when I was a kid by Dr. Seuss, and now they're part of the book burning in our culture, right? I mean, these were written when uh, Seuss was just a young guy. You know, he was just starting out. And, you know, it's got some things that are offending uh, people's sensibilities these days, and so you can't even buy them on Amazon anymore because Amazon's become way too righteous uh, for these books from Dr. Seuss. But um, I think about the fact that there are people who go through the things that you have said, you know, when you were younger. They're combing through all the stuff on the Internet, you know, finding the things that you've done wrong, and, and then you're not being forgiven. And people are being blacklisted. You know, journalists and entertainers and, and uh, professors and, you know, leaders because of things that they have done wrong in the past. And we find that what our culture does is it defines you by the sins you've committed or the, the mistakes that you have made. And it's just, we've got to walk on eggshells these days, don't we? We've just got to be so careful about what we say or do because there's people who are pointing fingers. We live in a culture, really, where we've got a lot of hall monitors and tattletales around. So what, what are we going to do? You know what? That's the way the world works. That's the way modern America is working. But that's not the way the kingdom of God works. And in Christ, my sin is not my destiny. And he closes this chapter by saying, My dear brothers and sisters, if someone among you wanders away from the truth and is brought back, you can be sure that whoever brings the sinner back from wandering will save that person from death and will cover over a multitude of sins. Not just one indiscretion you've committed in the past, but a multitude of sins. And I can't tell you how much comfort I take from that because I'm a flawed person and, and so are you. And what are we going to do if, you know, with this high standard that sometimes our culture is like, hey, we don't forgive. You know, you're canceled. You know, this kind of stuff. It's like the blood of Jesus covers over that multitude of sins. There's a book that's just come out. I read the review of it. It's called The Beginner's Guide to America uh, for the Immigrant and the Curious. This woman's an immigrant herself. She said, you know, the thing that bugs immigrants the the most when they first come to America is that you can't bargain uh, for your price, right? So if it's seven ninety-five a pound, you can't go to the butcher and go, you know what, this is a couple days old. How about four ninety-five? No, in America it's seven ninety-five. 
Personally, I like that. It's a lot less hassle, right? But she says the thing they really love first coming to America is you can get a refund if you bought something and it was a mistake. And she says being entitled to a refund even days after a sale was made was the surest sign of America's greatness to them. Proof that anything is possible because a one-time decision need not be destiny. That's the gospel, isn't it? That's like the effect of the gospel and the way we do merchandise right here. Even There have been times like, oh, you know, people return stuff a year later. They go, nah, it was a mistake. They're going, we're not going to hold it against you. Wow, that's so cool. Um, and you go like, man, is that really true? Is that the way God actually functions? I close with this here. This is T.F. Torrance. He's a great theologian, but before he was, he was a chaplain in World War II. And one day there was a soldier who's obviously dying right on the battlefield right there. And one of his, the last thing the soldier croaks out is this. He says, Padre, is God really like Jesus? And Torrance said this, God is indeed really like Jesus. There is no unknown God behind the back of Jesus for us to fear. To see the Lord Jesus is to see the very face of God. That's what we're celebrating this time of year, isn't it? At Lent, we're talking about Jesus, the very face of God, right? He comes in there and he takes upon himself that load of sins that you and I have committed. And he bears them for us and and lays it all down self-sacrificially, just gives of himself and gives to the point of death and suffering hell for us and his blood covers over that multitude of sins. We are no longer defined by the things that we have done or those mistakes that we might still be making. He's got a love for us that is shown most vividly. So let's let's pray. Father, we just want to thank you for for loving us and for sharing with us um, these these things that that James has uh, communicated. And Lord, just... Help us to walk these things out in the power of your spirit. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about Community of Hope, go to www.cohchurch.com. God bless you today.